Support for Industry Focus comes from our friends at Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. You're confident when it comes to your work and life. Rocket Mortgage gives you that same confidence when it comes to refinancing your existing mortgage or buying a home. It lets you understand all the details so you can be confident that you're getting the right mortgage for you. Go to rocketmortgage.com forward slash fool. Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. Today is Thursday, July 13th, 2017, so we're talking about energy and industrials. I am joined today by phone all the way from Thousand Oaks, California, and is, he is one of the Motley Fool's exceptional contributing investors for the energy and material space, Mr. Jason Hall. Good morning, Jason, and how's it going? Good morning, Sean. Things are fantastic. How are you? Very, very well. Um, great, so. Great. Uh, I got to congratulate you once again on uh, your recently minted uh, dad status. Thank you, thank you very much. It's uh, been a been a lot of change, very little sleep, but uh, well worth the experience so far. No I doubt am, about that. I am sure you're going to crush this thing. <laughs> I'm I'm learning a lot about myself and being humbled every day. That is uh, parenting one hundred and one right there. That's it. Um, so, Jason, many of our listeners may not have heard of you, but uh, you've had a heck of a foolish investing career. Um, you analyze companies in the space, uh, you know, energy industrials. You dip over to tech, uh, technology, and consumer goods occasionally. Um, you write about them for Fool.com full time. Um, you've met with industry bigwigs like T Boone Pickens, Tesla co-founder Ian Wright, uh, Clean Energy Fool CEO Andrew Littlefair. And, uh, and you've interviewed them for the fool. These videos are up, and um, there's even a rumor that you were the left shark in the Super Bowl in 2016. Can you comment on that? I'm not sure who started that rumor, but I'm approximately a foot taller than left shark. Ah, so that so debunked. I'm gonna have to shoot that one down. Debunked. Okay. Uh, well, in any case, I cannot thank you enough for calling in today. So thanks for your time. Thanks for having me. I'm I'm really excited to be on today. Um, so, Jason, this week, I don't know if you've heard, is Never Will I Ever Week on Industry Focus. And it's where we dive into something that we will never do again with our investments, perhaps because we've been burned in the past or just philosophically it just doesn't, you know, jive with us. Um, our sector, <laughs> it kind of lends itself pretty easily to this theme. And I immediately was like, oh, obviously a, a commodity stock that isn't a low cost producer. Um, once I chose this theme, you're the obvious choice. Um, I can't count how many hours we've talked on Slack and stuff just about co the commodity space, the cost advantages, disadvantages of producers. Um, right. You've taught me a lot over the last two years, so I again like thank you for calling in. Um, Absolutely. I, I think it. I think it also it, this this lends itself incredibly well because especially when you're talking about investing in commodities, um, you know, something that uh, Charlie Munger has, has talked about with, with Warren Buffett and with the success at, at Berkshire is so much of their success is things that they've said no to. And I think this is a, an industry and a segment of investing where the things that you say no to are going to guide 90% of your success. For sure. Um, so I'm going to suggest we do this in two sections. Um, first, I wanted to talk about why owning a low-cost producer is so important in you know just commodities. Um, maybe right. provide a few examples as cautionary tales, and there are lots. Um, <laughs> way Especially too many. the past two years. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and then um, we should probably get into some uh, true low-cost producers that exemplify why it's really the only way to fly when it comes to commodities. Um, so, 
tons of examples, probably way too many that we could possibly cover in 20, 30 minutes. But um, I'm curious, what's your favorite low, non-low-cost producer tale that just did not end well? Well, it, um, it, it's a personally painful one. Um, if, you, if, you, if you go back to, you know, $100 oil in you know, 2014s, mid-2014s kind of when the slide started, right? And at that point, oil was... You know, still trading well over a hundred dollars a barrel. Thanksgiving massacre. And, um, <laughs> uh, it was it was it was painful. Um, I um I had actually purchased uh, a small stake in both Brightburn Energy Partners and in Lynn Energy. Um, For our to, listeners that don't know, both of those companies have now gone the way of Chapter Eleven. Right, right, and you know. You know, there's there's going to be a future for their assets, right, and 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 that sort of thing. But in terms of us us common investors, uh, it was basically a, a complete loss. Um, so the short version is both of those two uh, partnerships, MLPs, um, an interesting structure that allows for great cash flows and dividends and that sort of thing. Uh, at a hundred dollar oil is a great way to, to 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 make money to get dividends from uh, from oil producers, but. Um, the, the problem is twofold. You know, these neither of these two producers were exactly on the lower end of, of production costs. They're somewhere kind of in the middle, which is fine when, you know, when oil's, you know, triple digits. But uh, the, the, the problem is because they paid out so much of their cash flows and dividends and didn't build any margin of safety, um, they, they were uh, left swimming naked when the tide went out, so to speak. And, um, and the bottom line is, you know, a lot of investors lost, you know, billions of dollars um, simply because these weren't low-cost producers. And also the way they managed their capital left them big-time exposed when uh, the low-cost producers um, flexed their muscle. And, you know, OPEC drove, uh, kept production high and drove prices down. And uh, here we go. That's but, a, there you go. Cautionary tale right there. Two, two companies that were great when prices were high, but as soon as prices fell, you know, they were devastated. Uh, you, it, I don't think you could have picked a better answer because it lends itself to, to so many like offshoots. Um, mm-hmm. The first thing that pops into my mind is um, one. I do have to admit, I, I too had a, a Lynn Brightburn sad experience. Um, but they, they're, they're MLPs, and really, it's inc- it's basically the same deal as a REIT. It's a real estate investment trust kind of a thing, and they are granted tax advantages. They do not yep. pay corporate federal income tax, which is, I don't know if you go to like, you know, Microsoft's income statement or something, it's like 35%. This is a chunk of change. It's a significant amount of cash flow efficiency that they gain. And, um, but there's a rule. 90% of profits need to be paid out as dividends, which of course, I don't, I don't think that's true for MLPs. I know REITs have to, but I don't think MLPs have to. It's not 100% the same as, you you know, it's a different sector, but it's like a right. weird thing called distributable cash flow or, right. uh, you know, cash there's flow operations very, there or something. Is, there is absolutely an expectation right? Uh, with, with MLPs. Right. That, I mean, the, the, the whole benefit of the structure is about being able to distribute cash. Right. That's the bottom line. Um, yeah. It, is, it does not lend itself well to the producer side of the business. There's no doubt about that. Sounds fantastic. The uh, uh, But it hurts. 
Yeah, no, and it, it worked for a while because you know you you not only had an increasing share price, but you had this like ten percent dividend deal, and I was like, oh my gosh, this is awesome. <laughs> um, but uh, the the only way you expand, the only way you grow that dividend, the only way you grow production of oil, if you're one of these Leveraging MLPs, in the balance sheet. Yeah, issuing debt or equity, man. The the okay. share counts of all those guys went up every year. Debt went up. I mean, it was just it requires capital to keep the party going. Right. Right. The um the other thing that I noticed in retrospect, and I actually would love to get your thoughts on this, is you're talking about how these guys weren't the low cost producers there at the middle of the range or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um their their models were they were not traditional like Howard Ham type, oh, I'm gonna find out oil in this place that nobody's found oil before. They literally just issued debt or equity and then bought assets from other companies. Right, which right. is especially bright, especially brighter, and that was an interesting thing about about their model. Um, they would buy really slightly kind of, older wells, basically, right? Yeah, yeah. They were they were they they were buying wells that were on. They were buying traditional. Uh, they were. I mean, they weren't weren't in the shale, shale business at all. They'd buy traditional wells that were just on the back end of their of their decline curve, and um, you know they'd use technology like in you know some different injection technologies to to kind of pump up production, but. Um, it just wasn't particularly cheap, and you know it's not like shale where you know innovation and drilling technology has has helped. Um, you know, like EOG Resources as an example is, is one I know that you right. that you liked. It's just super super low cost producer, great balance sheet. You know, they've leveraged technology and 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 um, you know just done a better job of of developing wells to drive costs out. Whereas you got Brightburn, they're buying wells that are already there and just. You know, it's kind of the last puff off the cigar, so to speak. Right. The um, yeah, I mean, you 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 mentioned EOG there, and um, gosh, this is over a year and a half ago now. But I uh, that was my first low cost producer oil stock that I I learned uh, you know wrote about when I was learning about the space. And this is when you and I started talking and everything. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But um, EOG is uh, it, it was kind of a happy accident because EOG stands for Enron Oil and Gas. <laughs> It was literally this castaway that Enron didn't want because they were making so much money cooking the books. I mean, trading. Uh, <laughs> they were making it look like so much money. Right. But uh, they literally just the castaway of all this land in West Texas down in the Eagle Ford Shale play. It's actually Southern Texas that nobody yep. wanted. They actually they left and they got 632,000 acres of oil leases down in Southern Texas that mm-hmm. nobody wanted until shale technology was advanced and then i was like oh right. wait a minute we can make tons of money and they're low their their cost of production is like uh, i think they uh their acquisition costs which you know quote unquote acquisition costs and we'll talk about this later is like 10 bucks right it's it, right. It, it's insane and it, it it's a happy yep. accident but it's definitely not the the the, the lynn brightburn scenario no not at all not at all and that's yeah i mean that was you know they were one of the first you know Kind of innovators and in, in the whole shale thing and with that Eagleford play um, back when that was hot stuff and now they're a big player in the Permian right which is you know some of the, some of the cheapest shale oil in the world and incredibly plentiful so um, one thing I it's noticed not just, it's not just their production cost that's huge I mean it's, it is a huge huge you know advantage to be you know on the low end side of the cost scale but it, it, it's also management that has allocated capital well and kept a solid balance sheet, right? For sure. 
The uh, yeah, and you mentioned like the management and everything. You know, he's got a heck of a team. Uh, the thing I've noticed, you know, because you know we did a bunch of prep for this show, and the thing I've noticed that, and just over the last couple of years, is a really good sign of a non low cost producer in the commodity space is balance sheet games. Yep, absolutely. The because uh, you. You look at like EOG or like a Pioneer Resources, Pioneer Natural Resources. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Their 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 income statements are incredibly boring. To be honest with you, it's like oh yeah, there's <laughs> nothing going on. Like, <laughs> right? No, the, that's that's. This is an industry that you want a boring balance sheet in, though. Amen. Do you um? Do you have anything any like popping in your mind about like other than oil, like uh, any any other commodity? Yeah, and I, I follow the uh, the steel industry uh, relatively closely, and um, you know it's it's a little bit different than um, than oil, but actually in a way it's not as different as it used to be because one thing we haven't mentioned with oil is that the true low cost producer is still OPEC. You know, you have you know Saudi Arabia with you know with with oil fields that are you know single digit cash production costs. Which, it's the estimates you know, I've seen is like eight dollars. It's, yeah, it's insane. And, and that's that's the real gorilla, right? So, so even when you're, you know, when you can produce, you know, twelve, thirteen, fifteen dollars, you know, there's still somebody that can produce it a hell of a lot cheaper. So, so, but again, oil is different because of you know the the international trading and that sort of thing. So, however, steel it has historically has generally been a pretty domestic industry, right? Just because of the cost of shipping and all that sort of thing. But even that's changed over the past few years um, where you have, you know, Chinese steel makers and, you know, Indian steel makers, you know, producing huge quantities of steel and then dumping it um, into, into U S markets. Uh, and uh, there's actually been a big problem in the past few years in that industry uh, because a lot of this, this, it's illegal dumping, you know, it's, it's being subsidized by, you know, the Chinese government, the Indian government, or, or, you know, whatever government of that, you know, steel producer. Um, and, and that's really, that's really hit um, steel prices in the U.S. when demand has been really, really, really high. Um, and and it's, it's certainly hurt the steel producers that, that haven't been on the low end of the, the cost profile. So if you look at steel, right, so low-cost producers, really you've got steel dynamics and new core um, they're, they're generally the, the low cost producers in the U.S. And if you look at their their returns compared to like U.S. Steel and AK Steel, uh, which are uh, more on the or higher cost end, <laughs> say that again. Or lack thereof when you're talking about returns. <laughs> right, exactly. Uh, just just the if you if you look at the returns over the past um, decade, for example, you know it's it's just it's it's remarkable. You know. It, U.S. steel stock is down 90-some-odd percent. And, uh, you know, since the bottom of the recession, you know, early 2009, Steel Dynamics stock is, you know, up like, I don't know, like 500 percent. So just, you know, incredibly different levels of of returns. And what it it boils down to is the way that they make the product. And, you know, you've got Steel Dynamics and Nucor kind of utilize these mini-mills which gives them not just low production costs, but also a lot of variability. And, and that's huge when you're in a cyclical industry where demand can really, you know, move a lot up and down between the, you know, the peak of the demand cycle and then the race down to the bottom and then the peak back up. The ability to scale down your production and bring your costs down is huge, absolutely huge. 
So you've got these other guys running these big, uh, you know, blast furnaces, and they can make a ton of money when when the industry is at its peak. But it's only going to be at the peak for like I don't know, ten percent of the time, and then right. they lose money for years and years trying to bring their production costs down. You know, it's it's kind of the same way. And you know, there's technology, and you know, they can manufacture products that have better margins and that sort of thing. Um, but there's only so much benefit you can get from that when your cost scale gets in the way. Wow. So, you know, it's, it's another, it's exactly the same situation when you, when you, uh, when you look at an industry like steelmaking where you're manufacturing the good, but still it's a commodity cost and it's, 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 uh, you know, it's, it's demand for that, that commodity that's still driving the price. For sure. All right, well, before we move on, I'd like to remind our listeners once again that support for Industry Focus comes from our friends at Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Chances are you're confident when it comes to your work, your hobbies, and your life. Rocket Mortgage gives you that same level of confidence when it comes to buying a home or refinancing your existing home loan. With Rocket Mortgage, you can uh, apply, simply understand fully so you can mortgage confidently. To get started, go to rocketmortgage.com forward slash fool. Equal housing lender, licensed in all 50 states, nmlsconsumeraccess.org number 3030. So, Jason, um, we've been uh, hating on the non-low-cost producers in oil, steel, and uh, structurally, just like philosophically, I think that probably applies the to, to every other commodity producer. And, um, you know, if, if, if our listeners want any more on this, just literally go to Warren Buffett, name brand, consumer advantage. I mean, it's endless. <laughs> the bottom line is you don't know the, the difference between somebody else's oil. You know what I mean? Right, exactly. It's, it's, it's a true commodity. It, exactly. Um, so, that being said, there are some awesome companies, awesome stocks, and awesome low-cost producers in the commodity world. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Any popping into your head right off the bat before we dive into this uh, report we found? Well, I mean, EOG and Pioneer are two, right? We've, we've already mentioned that, you know, they do a, they do a tremendous job. Um, you know, they're in, the, they're in the right plays, they're in the cheap plays, they've their their managements do a consistent job of of adding assets in those cheap plays, and um, they, yeah. they, they 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 go about growing it the smart way, and they keep their balance sheets clean, so they really gain the most you know returns on equity and, and you know returns on invested capital because of the fact that they are smart about how they leverage those 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 cheap low cost assets that they do have. Yeah, you look at a pioneer. I can't believe how bulletproof these guys have been. Because we, were, you know, you mentioned the Thanksgiving massacre when OPEC, you know, refused to cut production in uh, thanks, uh, you know, November 2014, and you know, that summer pioneer topped out at like two twenty, two thirty a share. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's come back a bit, but it's still rocking at one hundred and sixty. And you know, you take a look at their um, their cash flow statement. Um, they're actually expanding production right now, but. 2015, man, they were ten billion dollars free cash flow positive. I was like, right, this is crazy. Well, and I think I think it's important to remind listeners too that you know oil's you know you know we're in the 40s now, right? It's 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 still well down, but early 2016, I mean, we were in the 20s, right? So considering where we were, the bottom, and where we are now, you know, it's remarkable that these companies have. I mean, here, here's how strong their advantage is. They've they've been able to continue to perform well 
and they've grown production, right? I mean, that's huge. That's huge. Absolutely. I do need to correct myself real quick. I had the wrong window pulled up. Um, they were cash flow break even in 2015. and But you look at like the last 12 months, um, I've got Capital IQ pulled up here for Pioneer Natural Resources. Um, free cash flow break even in this world that we're living in with you know, $40, $45 oil. And it's, right. I, it's amazing that they're able to do this. Right. Very um, few. You could probably count on two hands the number of every producer in the, in the in North America that's that's doing that right now. Um, actually, funny you mentioned that because I've got the list right here. Um, <laughs> no, for our listeners, um, you're good enough, Jason, to send over the um, Ernst and Young every year. Ernst and Young, the the accountants, they put out uh, this this oil and gas reserve study report. And they do it once a year. You can go to Google, type in Ernst and Young U.S. Oil and Gas Reserve Study 2016, and get this for free. It's a PDF. And um, they break it all down, and this list is its basically a list of all the stocks that have held up this, this last two mm-hmm. years. Mm-hmm. Um, you got an Anadarko, you got Apache, you got, uh, well, Brightburn's on there, but that's uh, as one of the bad ones. Um, <laughs> and uh, do you think these guys just got lucky with where they bought the leases, or what, what do you think the difference is here? So I think it's two sides, right? I think, I think to a certain extent when it comes to the assets, that they that they start with there's a little bit of luck there right but then they find something and then they they start adding to it once they find out well hey this this is there's a ton of oil here we can get it out cheap but where it's not luck and this is the big thing is how the people that run these companies allocate capital right again let's go back to the lens and the and the and the brightburns where where those companies have failed was they, they, they gave all their money back to shareholders, which is great, right? And you want companies that can do that. But for a, a commodity company like an oil producer to preserve, to not retain capital, to buy those assets when you find them on the cheap and to have to use leverage and, or to have to issue equity to do it, that's a huge difference, right? And, and, the, and that's, so it's twofold. They're low cost hard part because they have the management that have been smart about how they've retained capital so that they can invest when they find that cheap, those cheap assets to grow volumes. And, and then you see what I mean? It's just, it's, yeah, no, for it sure. Gets, it gets back to good management. I mean, it really does. Yeah. You look at the, um, so Ernst and Young lists, you know, basically every company in the sector and they've got this approved reserve acquisition cost, um, structure and this, they do it on a per barrel basis. And you've got, um, even Chevron right now, they have them listed at twenty four fifty eight per barrel, and then you've got, yep. um, you know, like a, uh, I mean, boy, approach at nine bucks, cutting on a resource is forty two. Oh, that's a fun one, um, but yeah, EOG ten dollars, ten dollars a barrel. Yep, blows the mind. Um, so, uh, Mr. Hall, you get the last word. Never will I ever uh, buy a low-cost commodity producer. Any other disclaimers, reasons why you should break the rule, maybe? Um, I'm going to say only if it's a situation where it's an incredibly strong balance sheet and the management has a proven track record of operating well across different cycles of the industry. But I think in general, if you're going to buy a company that's in the commodity, commodity business, and you're not buying somebody on the low end of the of the cost scale, you're, you're eventually going to get burned because eventually prices are going to fall, and the company's not going to do well. Got it. And uh, one of the major red flags is uh, balance sheet games. Absolutely. Very good. Well, Mr. Hall, uh, we're going to get you back to your family, but thank you again for calling in. I want to do this again soon. 
Absolutely. I'll be on anytime you're uh, you're willing to subject your listeners to my voice. You bet. I'll talk to you soon, Jason. Great. Cheers. Thanks. Full on, everybody. And that is it for us, folks. If you're a loyal listener and have questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Just email us at industryfocus at fool.com. Once again, that's industryfocus at fool.com. And as always, people on this program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against those stocks. So don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear on this program. For Jason Hall, I am Sean O'Reilly. Thanks for listening, and Fool on! Fool on!